welcome to the Sport and History podcast, everyone. Uh, it's Casey here. Uh, as the postgraduate and early career researchers representative on the board, uh, my plan is to bring you more talks with our postgraduate and ECR members uh, to basically showcase all the fabulous research uh, that's going on. But I would also really like to chat with people who've got advice or opportunities for those same members. So do drop me an email if you'd like to be involved. Uh, my contact details are all on the BSSH website. Um, I'd love to hear from anybody. Uh, there is also now a Facebook group for postgraduate and early career researcher members, but membership of the group is not just solely for those members. It'd be lovely to have um, members from all kind of academics of all levels uh, from BSSH, because what we hope to do is create a supportive and friendly space that we can provide um, advice for one another, promote each other's research, uh, update members on news that might be relevant to postgrad and ECR members. Um, so you don't have to be a postgrad or ECR uh, student yourself just um, join up check it out and then hopefully we can um, create a nice little space that helps everybody so joining us today is Emily Ankers Emily is a postgraduate researcher having completed her master's by research in 2020 at Leeds Beckett University her MRes was titled everyday women's experiences of rock climbing 1970 to 2020 her research investigated how women's experiences of climbing have changed over time and she's now in the process of applying for a PhD to build on her findings. Emily is also the co-founder and editor of Beta Magazine, an outdoors and climbing magazine focused on the female experience, but inclusive of all. She's also co-network coordinator of the Women in Climbing and Mountaineering Network, and that network aims to connect researchers, industry professionals, and anyone with an interest. So thank you very much for joining us, Emily. Thank you for having me. Um, so let's start off by just chatting a little bit about your MRes and, and mm -hmm. your thesis and kind of what you found um, from your work. Yeah, so my thesis um, was an interdisciplinary thesis drawing on uh, sociology and history. Um, so what I really wanted to do was try and tr track the change over time and how women have experienced rock climbing. Um, so I suppose the historical kind of foundation and basis of that um, in terms of what I went and found was I went to the Mountain Heritage Trust archive and I looked through the collections uh, of print climbing magazines for representations of female climbers and tried to see if there were patterns, um, if things changed uh, and what continued, uh, which was quite important. And then I also interviewed female rock climbers aged between 21 and 70 uh, to ask them all about their experiences. So it, it wasn't just about getting different age um, perceptions. It was also about experiences situated within periods of time. So I kind of split it into decades. So experiences in the 70s compared to now. Um, so I found some really big changes. Uh, one of my favourite quotes was, uh, the fact that there's a choice of female harnesses now, when I started, there weren't any. You just had to tie a rope around yourself, <laughs> which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then also things that have continued, attitudes that kind of have remained. It's still a very male-dominated culture, and you can you can see that in the archive as well in terms of, you know, what the collections they have, um, and that's based on who who's been successful in mountaineering and climbing and who's deposited into the archives. So it's quite, it's quite telling. Um, and 
yeah just really the, the main focus was just really about hearing everyday experiences because that is massively under research I think in climbing there's a lot of attention on the elites and the, the pro athletes um but of course that experiences are really important but I was really interested in just you know the everyday person because they are the ones that kind of form the bulk of the community so that was really important to me yeah so I think yeah hope that answers the question <laughs> yeah no that's fab I mean what's kind of clear is that there is a what you kind of make clear in your in your work is that there is a diversity issue in climbing it's not just a gender thing um yeah what kind of why do you think that is I suppose and how do you think actually it could be potentially overcome to kind of make it more inclusive um activity yeah so it's quite interesting I think from like from the historical side of it so much of climbing and mountaineering is founded up through uh, colonialism and you know kind of going to places and conquering um you know being the first to summit this place and climb this thing first ascents is a really big thing and so it's a lot about domination and then it's a lot about male domination as well so I think it's really well entrenched and inherent things have got a lot better um but it's it's predominantly still at the top level uh kind of white middle to upper class um sport especially at the mountaineering side but climbing as well to an extent um and that just really comes through in terms of community climbing so like at climbing centers and at crags even centers that are in inner city uh like for example Birmingham and London hugely diverse cities and Leeds as well but you, it, there's still a huge lack of diversity so it's why what what is it that's presenting these populations that are living in these areas from going to climbing and one of the major things that people have identified is a lack of representation so you know if you can't see yourself then why why would you put yourself in that scenario and I think it's what well, no I think it's from uh, interviewing other people they can find it quite intimidating going into a space that is is so white that predominantly and also um a big lack of visible disability is a big issue as well so I know quite a few power climbers who are fantastic climbers but they're not visibly disabled or they're not visibly living with a disability and I think that that uh, sharing of those different experiences encourages others to come in. Um, but I think in terms of overcoming those issues, well, major thing is understanding the history, understanding why why we're in the situation that we are today. Um, and I think a lot of change needs to happen at the top as well. So there are some really great initiatives and there. Uh, campaigns and groups who are working to increase diversity working on inclusion but when you look at the people in those groups and I'm in one of those groups so I'm contributing to the problem in some ways it's it's a lot of well-meaning a lot of white faces and it needs to it needs to have representation from different communities and I think it is it is improving it is getting there and people are listening to people from different communities but there's still a long, long, long way to go. <laughs> I mean, something that's just kind of occurred to me is obviously we're hoping that there'll still be a, an Olympics in Tokyo 
Um, now, mm. speed climbing is is going to be a part of the Olympics, isn't that? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you think that might help in terms of kind of, I don't know much about the people who compete, but might it raise awareness or inspire people? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. So in the Olympics, it will be three climbing disciplines, uh, speed climbing, sport climbing, which is where you climb with the rope attached to you and then you kind of clip as you go and then bouldering as well and most professional climbers they before the before climbing was going to be included in the olympics they would stick to one um climbing discipline so a lot of them have had to learn how to do these other things as well um so i guess that's just what like what it will look like in the olympics but i think uh i think there will be an increase in popularity when it goes into the olympics because it's something that a lot of people, when they first try it, they say, oh, I didn't really know anything about this. And now that I've tried it, I don't even really feel like I'm doing the sport. It's just a fun activity. So many people just say that climbing is like an adult playground because you, you're just like, just climbing around like when you were a child. Um, and it's it's so accessible to different levels of fitness and ability as well, which I think is quite important. And there are always people at every level. So it could be their first climbing session or they could be really, really well experienced. And it's that kind of environment where all different abilities are always together. Um, so sorry, that's not that's not in relation. That's, that's the Olympics question. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, hopefully it raises raises awareness um, as with any it was with any sport that tends to get that yeah. kind of media coverage so it hopefully make a difference um so like i said in the intro you're a co-founder yeah. of a of a magazine have you applied kind of what you found in your research to your magazine uh, in any way yeah so when we founded beta um it was a direct result of my research so it, it, i found that women don't engage with print climbing uh, media because I asked them what do you think about it what do you think about the representations of women and I was really surprised because almost everybody said oh I don't I don't even read them I, I don't really know what the representations are and it's because the, the limited experiences of reading them they said that they couldn't relate to them it wasn't engaging too much focus on the elites too too many gay reviews um, not enough real people real life people so we created Beta to kind of provide a platform for all, all levels um, of climbers, all levels of ability, and as many diverse voices as possible. So we try and actively recruit, uh, well, not recruit, we, we try and uh, get contributors with really varied experiences, but a massive challenge is finding contributors who are diverse because climbing is you know it isn't that diverse and we're very aware of going to mar marginalized or underrepresented groups and asking people to put in time and effort into writing content for us when we can't yet pay anybody so as soon as we can start paying contributors I'll feel a lot more comfortable going to different people but we're really aware of the issues kind of in the media at the moment where people are approached to appear on tv or to be interviewed um but that they're, they're just being asked to relive traumas over and over again and they're not getting paid um, when they should be because it's a lot of work and we we allow people to write about whatever they want to in beta you know anything um 
so we, and we would never ever ask somebody to relive a trauma but we are really mindful of those inequalities and we don't want to kind of make that gap bigger um, yeah. and trying to learn from what the mass media has made mistakes in yeah. what an amazing thing to have come out of your research that's that's really uh, it's really incredible um you've got a blog as well so there's lots of outlets for kind of your writing which is um which is really good but the thing that struck me that's on your blog and is in your research is about kind of climbers were talking about actually how the sport helped their mental health I mean, obviously we're in a difficult time for mental health is that something that you identify with is it something useful for you do you think it helps in these difficult times yeah it's really interesting because when I was looking at your questions I thought about this and my immediate response was yes but then I thought actually no because <laughs> I do so much work on it so in the magazine um, working on other bits of research and articles and stuff so I actually am at a point where when I go climbing, I'm overthinking and overanalyzing what I'm seeing happening around me. <laughs> so then if I if it's a day where I'm kind of um, I'm just not in a great headspace or I'm anxious about something to work, when I go into a climbing environment and I have to use my mind to you know figure out a route, I actually find it really stressful. Um so I don't think that I'm a very I'm a very good example but what I did find was that a lot of people use climbing as their outlet for stress and for mental health management so they work in an unrelated job and yeah. then they go to the climbing center and they have to focus on right how do I do this and what, one of the great things about climbing is that when you, you look at a route one person will climb it one way and somebody else because of their climbing style and their body will climb it completely differently so it's really really personalized experience you have to really really think and that that side of it is what I found helps so many people with their mental health it just completely takes them out of their day-to-day -day lives and kind of is quite a therapeutic practice and then the other side is the going climbing outdoors and being in nature as well and um quite a lot of uh like grounding techniques as well um so actually connecting with the rock and you're not you're not just out walking you're really like right in the center of that environment and um, it's something that people talk about so I think other people yes um but but I I still do lots of other kinds of exercise as well and that really helps me so like doing yoga and going running um, but just not always climbing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's fair enough. I know what it's like when you get so engrossed into a topic that even the bits that you used to enjoy, not, it's kind of difficult to um, split the two sometimes. But on yeah. your help, you mentioned that actually you did a mental health first aid course um, yeah. and kind of be, talking about being a mental health uh, champion. So I guess a lot of people might not be aware that you can do these mental health first aid courses. Mm -hmm. So kind of how did you find the course? What was it like? And are there any mm -hmm. strategies that might help people at this time because obviously everyone's struggling a little bit yeah so I attended the course through uh, Carnegie School of Sport because it was um, open to all any staff that wanted to attend and as an MRS student you're associate staff so you kind of get some of the staff perks um so this so this email just dropped into my inbox and I thought oh, that's that sounds really interesting I never even I never heard of it I didn't know you could do it um so it was a one-day course and we basically 
I think there were maybe 15 people in our group and you were split into smaller groups for kind of doing the activities and discussions but there was a massive emphasis on it being like a safe space um, no judgment you can share experiences if you wanted to you didn't have to but what was really interesting was there was a massive emphasis on your own self-care to be able to help other people so to be able to help students and colleagues so it was that you can't support somebody else if you don't know how to support yourself so going into it I thought oh I'll get all these really handy tips and tricks for you know helping other people but actually it was so much about your own experiences um so really practical things about how can you kind of manage your own mental health but also a lot around wellness um and I suppose subjective well-being too um so I don't want to without getting that academic about it but just what what do you what do you find beneficial so if you are somebody who does a lot of exercise and you find that really helpful then absolutely do that but also you don't need to feel the pressure to do that you personalize it because I think these kind of catch-all um well-being guides don't suit everybody no pamper nights and painting your nails but I, I'm not yeah. going to do that so that's not me either <laughs> yeah. um but yeah I would really recommend that people take the opportunity if they can especially if the if, you, if you're an academic and your university offers it definitely because they are quite expensive to do independently yeah. um so that's a major bonus but if you're not an academic uh or connected to an institution I think that there are still ways that you can do it um I was talking to Carol Osborne yesterday and she said she'd found access via uh courses delivered in the US so if there are ways around yeah. it um but yeah it was really really positive good I mean it sounds a little bit similar I did a course in counseling and um just like a, a fairly a fairly basic thing in, in counseling and a lot of that is about understanding yourself as well and you had to kind of do little bits of counseling on yourself a little yeah. bit to kind of help understand because you can't help other people like you say if you um if you're potentially struggling or something else kind of going on um yeah. it kind of it kind sure. of brings us a little bit I suppose into the, into the next question that you and I both have something in common that we've been trying to finish significant pieces of research <laughs> during a global pandemic um and I, I, you know, I found just limiting the hours that I was working a little bit more than I did, making sure I was getting out for a, a walk or a run each each day. Mm -hmm. um, how did how did you deal with it? You know, any kind of tips that might help others? It might not. Obviously, Eric, like you say, everyone's different. But um, how was that? Yeah, it was. Well, it was definitely interesting. Um, most of my, so when I was doing my interviews, I did, I managed to do four in real life. And then the, all the rest I did over Zoom or over the phone. Um, so then I was typing up transcripts in lockdown, which, you know, if you've typed up transcripts, it's very, it can be very tedious at the best of times. But when you're not allowed to leave the house more than once a day. <laughs> so for something like that a very tedious task I found just changing the environment that I was in really helpful even if it was just from going from my office to the kitchen table back to my office 
in good weather, sitting outside if the screen if the sun didn't glare too much. Um, obviously that's that's not really very practical at the moment because the weather's absolutely horrible. Um, but even just things like change changing the environment that you're in in small ways. So if, you know, if you bought yourself some flowers at the shop and then it just makes your environment a little bit different. Or um, my partner and I we're both grown adults but we built a den in our living room one weekend yeah and then when we took it down it was like it felt like we'd been somewhere else even though we hadn't (laughs) we were still just watching Netflix (laughs) um that was a that was really really helpful Uh, I found sticking to a routine where possible to be very beneficial but at the same time if it was a day where I just you know when you have those days when you just hit a wall and you just you can't you're just looking at the words yeah. and they don't mean anything um then to not beat yourself up for leaving the routine and then coming back to it because I think on this, those days there's just nothing you can do especially yeah. in a lockdown um and just all that general well-being wellness stuff you know getting outside if you can really yeah, important kind of like more than ever it's about giving yourself a break and not feeling guilty like you say if you hit that wall and you're just struggling whether it's because the work's too much or the pandemic's too much it's about recognizing that you might just need a day off to um just rest <laughs> and yeah. kind of look after yourself and that sort of thing as well and I also found that it was really helpful to attend like shut up and write sessions or shut up and read sessions in the school of sport um and they now have like a, a tea and talk Tuesday and just making sure you stay connected to the academic community well not not even the academic community just other post-grad researchers mm. even if you're just moaning about transcribing it's still I think helpful and I I think that you, if you have worked on campus and you really miss that just having people who know what you're going through because my partner is a software engineer and he he just has no concept of the work that I'm doing equally I have no idea what he's doing so talking to people that understand what you're going through is also really helpful (laughs) yeah and hopefully like this Facebook group that we've set up can also be a bit of a space that people can um post on it if they're just worried or got questions or just I hope it'll be a space that will connect people and you know people can help each other out and know that they're not the only ones perhaps feeling the way that they are I think that's that's really yeah. important um so you're hoping so you're in the process of applying for PhD programs so presumably it's going to be based on your MRes is that yeah so it kind of depends on w- which ones I'm successful in applying yeah. for in terms of that will shape what I do um but I am really keen to apply intersectionality in a meaningful way because in my MRS, I wanted to do an intersectional study, but then when I recruited uh, participants to interview, I just, I couldn't get the, the group that I wanted because it was so much in terms of who was available. Um, you know, some people were key workers, but then there were other people who were at home on furlough and they just, it was, something for them to do to be interviewed so then when I tried to apply intersectionality it actually just had the effect of othering those people um that were slightly different to the rest of the group I couldn't I couldn't do it in a meaningful way it just 
it just wasn't going to work so going into a PhD I'd really like to do it in a meaningful way and properly um also I think a lot of that had to do with me not understanding the kind of theory and like just sociology was completely new to me when I went into my master's um and just growing a bit more this research on mental health and well-being in climbing and lived experiences of that so we know that going outside is good like good for your brain and makes you happier but actually what are people's experiences of that and I think as well coming out of the pandemic it'll be really interesting to ask people about their experiences of not climbing because that's something that I've heard people really really struggling with because climbing was their outlet and then when it's been taken away especially people who are really really committed to it it's um I think it's been really hard on a lot of people more than just losing a bit of strength Um, so I would like to learn a bit more about that but yeah just just contributing more to the data um on how people experience climbing and what are the barriers or what are the motivators because it's just not it's just not out there it's just you just can't find that information um so yeah that's that's what I would like to do it's fab it sounds like there's a big gap there for the research naturally to fill so um yeah good luck with all your uh all your applications and stuff um, thank you <laughs> when we were sending each other's messages about um about this podcast you kind of mentioned about kind of your belief about archives being well used mm. and kind of not seen as dusty relics um I guess t- two parts to it like how can archive depositories kind of help with that you know in terms of perhaps promoting what they're doing but also from a researcher's point of view how can they kind of help and make sure that these places are are used more yeah yeah so it's really interesting because um so all of my archive-based research was done at mountain heritage trust mountain heritage trust is um basically at the base of blencathra it's at the blencathra field center and it's about five minutes from keswick drive and when i went and stayed in keswick um chatting to people about what I was doing and said that oh I'm doing work at MHT at the Blancathra Centre and they would say oh what's that I don't know what that is and in Keswick is uh, the community in Keswick absolutely pride themselves on being outdoors um you know like a hub of activity for adventure and I find it absolutely mind-blowing that they didn't know about this archive that had so much of their history so I suppose one thing is about connecting the communities to their local history, um, however however that might be. So I, I think the classic thing is, you know, that uh, staff can go into schools and take collection items, but I think it, sometimes it needs to be a bit more creative than that. Um, so this is a bit random, but we were watching a film last night about this guy in Australia who ran the an old railway track and it was a like it was a marathon run and he did it to try and show people about their local history they didn't know or appreciate I mean that's that was quite running a marathon through like uh, the like Australian bush was a bit extreme but it was such a creative process yeah. um and it was really really engaging so you know can artists and filmmakers get involved and can you know 
can schools do projects where they make films or make documentaries and, and things like that um, about their, their history. And then in terms of what researchers can do, I think most I think most researchers do this anyway. They really shout about and celebrate the archives that they've been to, especially when they've got really fantastic collections. But um, I think this might lead into another question, but about making that research accessible to the popular reader as well, and it not just being you know a rigorous academic analysis of something, um, making it actually engaging and also showing why there's value in it is really important because and this this links to research in general making research accessible you have to show why your research has can bring value to somebody and then lead with that first and then tell them about it rather than say I went here and I, I found this cool thing because people just say okay that's cool great but what what's that got to do with me it's, like, well, it's got everything to do with you if you're a climber and mountaineer and you you know in a very real sense you, people climb routes that were established by big names in the history of mountaineering and they might not know that but they oh yeah I climbed that and this person did that for the first time 200 years ago that's really interesting so yeah I think that connection and value factor is really important I hope that makes sense <laughs> yeah no it makes, makes perfect sense um, I remember having a, a conversation with someone at um, Nash a couple of uh, years ago and they worked in an archives in a university in the US and what I'd spoken about was um, partly about these images that I found in the Vassar College archives that no one had ever seen before. I mean Vassar clearly weren't aware of them mm. because on their history website everything kind of didn't match with what I found and they were like you should tell them because archivists will obviously have a broad understanding but that even they don't know what every single thing is in their archives and you might find something that yeah. that actually they're not that aware of because in the stacks and stacks of boxes and boxes of physical education stuff at Vassa and I found these these photos that they didn't appear to know anything about um so I think sometimes we assume that, that people who work in archives know everything that's in there and they don't always um so kind yeah. of pointing that out can be a really a really good thing as well for sure that's it and also a lot of archi archivists are not um are they're trained in working in archives but they're not trained in that area of history which yeah. i think is is quite an interesting thing because if i wanted to go and work at mhd i would have to do a whole other degree yeah um, archive management so yeah definitely that's yeah i think that's a really good point um and like you said it it is about making research accessible and obviously you're doing a great job what with your your blog and with um the magazine um and that's kind of what i'm interested in as well because my research on women playing american football with so many more women playing i want to make sure that my research is accessible to to just women who've got an interest in the sport or women who play the sports so obviously yeah. part of how you do that is your blog and magazine but any other kind of top tips for any of our postgrad ecr members about kind of getting your research out there yeah it's it's quite it's quite difficult um because it's also depends on how much time you've got to spare yeah. isn't it and so you know actually doing the research and writing it into a thesis or articles for journals is so so time consuming and energy cons consuming um 
so if you do if you can write a blog if you have got time I think that is really valuable and I think it's also quite it can be quite a therapeutic process as well because you can talk about your experiences of doing the research and not just what you found um, and I think that that is really important and that goes missing sometimes I think in academia um, I think that networking is so important and so useful I before I started my MRS I set about a, a Carol Osborne calls me a serial networker because I'm, I'm very willing to just talk to people and um I, I think it's just a personality trait I'm I can just write an email I don't have to think about it I send it off if I get something back great um but just connecting with people that you know have similar interests and again if your research can bring value to, to those people but it is it is a shame it is so much about who you know in in that how useful your research might be so for example I've got um, some connections to the British Mountaineering Council and so that increases my the chances of my research getting used and also mountain training as well so my my thesis is will be um used to form quite a big chunk of uh the literature review for their participant demographic research and that's because I've got that connection and they know about my work so I've told them but if I didn't put myself out there and yeah. tell them they would have no idea and I think that's a big issue with master's level work which is often done to a really high standard and it's really really valuable research but because it's because uh, it's not PhD people aren't publishing from it and so it doesn't get put out there unless you put yourself out there um, so I think my advice would just be if you know you've done something that's got value in it then just be confident and show that off but I think as British researchers we find that really hard and I have I find it quite hard to get the balance sometimes I think oh I'm, I'm showing off I need to stop but it, that's that's just the inner voice telling you that you need to stop but actually you should you should show off what you've done <laughs> you should be proud of it <laughs> absolutely yeah it is I I know what you mean it's like sometimes the kind of embarrassing you know am I kind of promoting myself that much and then there's always the whole thing about feeling like a bit of a like an academic fraud as well that's the other awful thing is my work good enough but yeah, we should definitely shout about what people are doing and what you know individuals um, are up to. I love the idea of being a serial networker. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's a great phrase. Um, it's really it's really embarrassing, but um, yeah, I, when I've been applying for things and research assistant roles, my network is one of my massive selling points, and that's why I've I've got this research assistant job that I'm doing at the moment because. I'm so well connected to organizations that can help yeah. um so yeah it's just one of those things <laughs> yeah so I guess in just basically put yourself out there folks you know um post-grad ECR uh researchers um because like you say the more networks you've got the more opportunities that are going to going to arise from it so I think that's a yeah. it's a really great idea it's hard to do but um it is a really great idea um so thanks ever so much, Emily, for chatting with us. Um, I'm just going to, a little reminder, folks, obviously the Facebook group 
do check that out. But also a reminder that we actually have a BSSH new COVID-19 research grant uh, for postgraduate and early career researchers. Um, so if you fall into that category in our membership, if there is something that you need that you're struggling to access because of a pandemic, it could be a book that you need, you just can't get through your institution. It could be um, access to some kind of digitised resources, some tech that you need, anything at all, folks. Um, that money is there, so please do apply uh, apply for that. Um, so that's it for this uh, edition. Thanks, Emily, for joining us. Um, hopefully I'll be bringing you more fantastic research that um, our postgrad and ECR members are getting up to. Um, but for now, uh, look after yourselves, folks, and take care.